It's good to see all the men who came out on a holiday where we should be out barbecuing and so forth. We know where our priorities are, don't we? Right here in the house of the Lord. So let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to be with you, to join as men, iron sharpening iron. We know, Father, that it's your will that we become the spiritual leaders in our, our family, in our church, and in our community, and we pray that we accomplish this purpose, at least move toward it tonight. And so open our hearts as we look into one of your servants, pour your spirit upon this place, that we may hear your word and hear the lessons applied to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look through the pages of Scripture, oftentimes you, one of the nice things about the Bible, I should say, is that most of the characters seem human. They make mistakes, sometimes pretty big ones. You got people like Moses, Abraham, Peter, you know, Peter saying he's going to stand up, defend the Lord, and ends up denying him three times. You got Paul, who had a really short temper. Um, let us not forget Adam. Start of it all. And then even David, who was described as a man after God's own heart, he stumbled big time. And a lot of these mistakes caused long-lasting repercussions later. But tonight we're going to look at a fellow who's a notable exception, that we really, in through the pages of Scripture, don't really find any record of him really making any mistakes whatsoever. But we know he's human. No, we're not talking about Jesus. But a young lad who was a product of a society very similar to our own, where moral and spiritual decay was rampant, in fact it was the norm, repeated warnings by different prophets, basically were, went unheeded, and yet he shines through as a man of God no matter what. You probably know who I'm talking about, a young man by the name of Daniel. Open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. And let's start in chapter 1. We're going to kind of be moving through the part of the book, not the whole thing. There's a lot here, and we don't need to really go through the entire thing. It's an inspiring story and one that should inspire all of us. And a lot of people will say, well, look, yeah, Daniel, I can't be that way. Okay, yeah, he, he, this is different circumstances. I can't be that way. Or, or it's too late for me. You know, he started off young, and I'm already in my 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, and, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian now, but I can't be that way. But there's a lot about Daniel we can learn, and even those new to the faith can apply a lot of the lessons that are here. And as we look, we see that Daniel is like us all, and we're going to find that Daniel was very human, okay, and very much so. And he, even though it was not written yet, it was inspired, he was well aware of that verse out of Romans. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we will find he includes himself in this. But first, a little background. Daniel chapter 1. Let's go ahead and start with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, 
with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles of the treasure, or articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So as we look through this, the first thing we see is Nebuchadnezzar dealing with a rebellion. We haven't gotten quite, we're actually kind of in the middle of it in, on Sunday, going through Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar was dealing with rebellion in Judah. Okay? At this point, Jehoiakim, who was the king, switched sides. There was a, basically a cold war, a political battle going on between Egypt and Babylon. And at first, Jehoiakim was with Babylon, then he switched sides to go with Egypt, and he paid the price. There was a huge, long siege of Jerusalem, and it wasn't the final disaster that eventually destroyed the city. It was just one of the, only the first. And at this point, Jehoiakim had already died. His son was taken captive. And all the pride of Judah, the best artisans, the best of the upper classes, were taken to Babylon in exile. Now, sending people into exile wasn't unusual in this day and age. The Assyrians had done it about 100 years before with the northern kingdom of Israel. However, this time around, Nebuchadnezzar had a different type of plan. Because he was dealing with this rebellion, he wanted to make sure that there was nothing to, for people to rebel over. You take away the potential leaders, and not only that, you put those guys in the positions of authority in your own government, so you kind of remove any need to rebel. Okay? Now, considering these guys just got through a huge siege and a long march across the uh, desert into Mesopotamia, you can gather that this idea of having the best food and wine was very, very appealing. Nebuchadnezzar knew his audience and knew that this would probably work. Proper inducement for cooperation. We go on, starting in verse 6. Now, among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Ah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ah, we've heard that if we've been in Sunday school at any time in our lives. This was part of the assimilation process. For example, Daniel's name meant God is my judge in order to completely submerge his Jewish identity and to basically erase this cultural connection, he was now given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, which meant Bel, protect his life. Bel being the chief of the Babylonian uh, pantheon of gods. Hananiah, that means the Lord shows grace. His name was now given Shadrach, command of Aku, which was the Babylonian moon god. Mishael, means who is what God is. Now his name was changed to Meshach, fairly close, who is what Aku is. Okay? And Abednego, well, his original name was Azariah, the Lord helps. 
Abednego, that means servant of Nego. And Nego was the god of wisdom, also sometimes referred to as Nabu or Nebu, Nebuchadnezzar. He was also named after this god of wisdom. But now we come to the first of five points I want to make about Daniel. He's been given these new names. They're given identities. He's now said, yeah, guess what? You get to eat whatever you want. Here it is, the best of the king's delicacies. Point number one, Daniel stood, stood firmly for what he knew was right, no matter what. We look now at verse 8. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill, into the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. At this point, this was a very bold move on Daniel. Remember, he is a teenager. He was of a conquered race. He was not exactly in a position to call the shots. And he didn't do it in such a way as like, no way, I'm not eating that stuff. He did it very politely and very discreetly and basically said, look, I really won't want you to do this. I don't want to eat this food. Ashpenaz, on the other hand, was kind of acting as, hey, listen to your dad in, in, in absentia. If your father was here, he'd probably say, look, this is not a good idea, okay? Just go ahead and eat it. If you don't, things are not going to be good for me, and by implication, things aren't going to be good for you. And he had good reason to think about it. Because first off, the diet that we find Daniel requesting was vegetables and water, which doesn't sound so bad until we look into the fact that in Babylon, water was pretty badly polluted. It's a large city. Its water supply was from the Euphrates River, and that was also the main sewage system. Okay. So that's the main reason why a lot of people drank wine at that point in time, because it gave some sense of, of disinfectant to what they drank. And the water just plain, you didn't want it. It was for irrigation, it was for washing, but that was it. Vegetables, that's peasant food. You're working for the king now. You don't need peasant food. And even by today's standards, strictly vegetables and water isn't that balanced of a diet for growing young men. There's no protein to allow them to grow. So this was not an unreasonable fear on the part of, you know, on the part of the chief. He's thinking, you know, this, you don't know what you're talking about, guys. Just listen, you know, save yourself the trouble. But verse 11, Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance be examined before you. And if the appearance of the young men who eat the portions of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So basically he says, look, try it out. 10 days, it's not that long. Okay, we'll eat the vegetables and the water. The rest of them, they'll eat what the king gives them. And then compare afterwards. If it looks like we're starting to fail or we're starting to get really bad, then we'll do what you say, okay? We'll follow along. But test us first. And really, to be honest, Ashwinas says, okay, sure. Ten days, not that long. You're going to be here for three years. King's not going to really look in on us. 
all right, if there's any damage, we can repair it, no problem. So they did it. Verse 14. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. That was a miracle. Okay? That was definitely a miracle that that much of a difference was made in just 10 days. It really isn't that long. God was with these guys. God was with Daniel. And furthermore, God blessed them for this stand. Going on to verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, they were found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Staying obedient, he got blessed. So Daniel stood for what he knew was right, and he didn't budge an inch. In many respects, it kind of reminds me of Matthew 10:32. Don't have to turn to it, I'll read it. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Daniel had a reason he did what he did, and his reason was his obedience to God. And he was willing to stand for that belief, for that knowledge, even though he knew that he could die. This kind of brings us to our second point, going on to chapter 2. Okay? What we're going to do here, I'm not going to read it out directly because we're kind of limited on time, but kind of, and a lot of you may have heard this story, and just, so I'm going to kind of paraphrase it in my own way. Nebuchadnezzar starts dreaming. As we read through chapter 2, he has a dream. And he wakes up and he realizes this dream is incredibly important. So what does he do? He wants this dream interpreted. Now, in Babylon, Babylonian astrology which also included dream interpretation, by this point had become pretty much a, an art and a science. Okay? In fact, we see our astrology today is a direct descendant from these original Babylonian um, dealings in the occult. So it was natural, hey, I had a bad dream, it means something, let's bring in someone who can deal with these dreams. So he brings in the astrologers, he brings in the soothsayers, he brings in the Chaldeans, he brings in all the usual suspects, and he says, okay guys, I had a dream. I need to know what the interpretation. No problem, king. And I love that they have the, what I call a polite nothing. Oh, king, live forever, as if we really want you to. A polite thing to say. Tell us the dream. We'll give you interpretation. No problem. They're basically saying, oh yeah, this is good. King, when he rewards us, when he give him a good interpretation, what is it? King says, no, no, no. I want you to tell me the dream, then the interpretation. Uh, pardon me, your majesty? Uh, you said, what? I want you to tell me the dream, and then tell me the interpretation. 
Oh, uh, Sire, please tell us a dream first, and we'll give you the interpretation, honest, you know, but we kind of need to know what the dream is. Now, we're not sure why Nebuchadnezzar was doing this at this point. Perhaps he was suspicious. Maybe they interpreted a dream and it had all the, uh, all the specifics and accuracy of a fortune cookie. I don't know. Okay. All we do know is that he wasn't going to let him do this. And, you know, they had their little books, and then basically it went by a series of formulas, and, okay, he dreamed about this, this means this, he dreamed about that, that means that. Put it all together, and here you go. And apparently he wasn't satisfied with it. He said, no, I'm serious. Tell me the dream and the interpretation. If you do it, you're going to be greatly rewarded. If you don't do it, you're dead. And Nebuchadnezzar knew what he was talking about. He was not known for his mercy. He probably knew what mercy meant, but he chose not to exercise it, and he meant business. Finally, they just said, King, Your Majesty, this is impossible. No one can do this. No one alive can do this. The gods can do it, but they're not here. It's just us. Won't do it then? King says, Fine, you're dead. And he gives the order. Kill all the wise men, every single one of them, which, by the way, does include Daniel and his three friends. So out goes the personal bodyguard. They're going out. And now we pick up chapter 2, verse 14, actually 13. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his, and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to, the, to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Arioch made the decision known to Daniel, and so Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time so that he might tell the king the interpretation. So basically, Daniel's a little confused. What's going on here? The guard tells him, well, here's the story. And Daniel says, oh, is that it? Quickly, he goes into the king, which is another bold move. Right now, the king probably did not want to see a wise man at all. Now you got this little Judean guy coming in and says, Your Majesty, I need some time so I can give you the interpretation. But notice how he said it. It's not that I want you to tell me the dream. I need time to get it to you. And probably at this point, the king is thinking, Sure, why not? Go ahead. If you're right, great. If you're wrong, well, you're a dead man anyway. So, point number two. Daniel did things God's way. He didn't go running back to the books, everything he learned when he went through that three years of training in the University of Babylon. He probably had all the training. He did well. He knew what he was doing, but that's not what he did. He knew that that was stuff. We don't worry about stuff. What does he do? Oops. Okay. What does he do? He goes immediately to his friends. Verse 17. Daniel went to his house made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek the mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. First thing he did, didn't go to the books, went to the Lord. Got on his knees, and we actually see what happened. Verse 19, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven, 
Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what it is or what is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. I thank you and I praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. And now have made known to me what we have asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. The second part of this point is not only does he do good things God's way, he gives God the credit, no matter what. He's not going to say, oh, yeah, we're done. I'm taking care of it. Ah, guess what? I found the answer. No, we'll see as we jump to verse 24. Daniel went to Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell him, the king the interpretation. Now, I like this little twist in 25. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man, I have found a man of Judah, a captive, who will make known to the king the interpretations. Someone's got to take the credit, so I guess he figured it was him. So, king says, okay, yeah, I recognized you. You came in yesterday. Let me know what's going on. Remember, Daniel went to the Lord. Now he's going to give him credit. Verse 27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head in your, upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who have made known the interpretation to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Even at this point, Daniel's saying, it's not me. And we're not going to go through it. This is a, a lesson in and of itself. Daniel basically interprets the dream. First, he tells it to him. You dreamed of this huge statue. Had a gold head, had um, arms of a breast of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet mingled with iron and clay. Yeah, you saw this, and then a rock came along, destroyed it, poof, it's gone, and that rock became this, filled the whole scene, filled up the entire world. Then he went on to interpret it, talking about, oh yeah, these are different empires. Yours is the one on the top, the gold, the head of gold, and then these succeeding empires later on. And the final one, of course, was the kingdom of God. But finally, as we look at verse 45, okay, Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Daniel has the last word. This came from God. You can bank money on it. And Nebuchadnezzar, he's thrilled. That was the dream. He knew what it was. He got the interpretation, and it's kind of interesting. Here, someone who was about to execute all the wise men is now prostrating himself in front of the captive of a third-rate nation, 
wanting to basically declare that this God was so wonderful. However, we find that Nebuchadnezzar was basically caught up in the emotion of the moment. And we're going to see later, and you can read it in several places, that he forgets this little lesson. Daniel, doing all to the glory of God. Point three, and this is kind of related to the last two. At this point, Daniel now had a reputation. Okay? He had an outstanding reputation, including matters concerning his walk with God, which was unshakable no matter what. Quickly, there are several stories here. Jumping to Daniel chapter 4. We have a, a nice, unique piece of scripture here that was actually penned by a pagan king. Okay? This was essentially a testimony from King Nebuchadnezzar, who basically had another dream. Oops. Okay? He had another dream. And this time he called in all the wise men. And this time he told them the dream. And they're looking through their little books and thinking, uh, this doesn't make any sense. Well, what he dreamed essentially was there was this huge tree in a field, and it was a it filled up a whole area, the birds flocked to it to nest in it, the animals sheltered underneath it. It was great and glorious, and then suddenly this angelic being from heaven came down and ordered that the branches be stripped, the tree, tree cut down, just leave the stump and then put iron and bronze around the stump. And basically, we go into images of a man becoming a beast for seven periods of time and then regaining his sanity. And this was an amazing dream too. Okay, Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar, quite disturbed by it, but look at verse 8 of chapter 4. But at last, Daniel came before me. Nebuchadnezzar is writing this. Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. Note this. In him is the spirit of the holy God. This is a pagan king saying this. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of the dream that I have seen and its interpretation. He knew who to really to turn to. It's hard to say why he didn't go to Daniel first. Could be Daniel was off on business somewhere, on royal business, and he basically came in last. We don't know. We also see another side of Daniel here. Verse 19 Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretations concern your enemies. Apparently Daniel had a soft spot for Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had treated him very well. He had promoted him to a very high position. He had been very thankful for what the interpretations that he had done. And I guess there's more, you know, more along the lines that Scripture doesn't tell us. But clearly Daniel had a little soft spot. He's thinking, this is bad news. And the king said, I don't care. I want to hear it. And we know what the interpretation was. Basically, the king, because of his ways was going to be stripped of his kingdom. He was going to basically become like a beast. 
eating grass, allowing the, uh, the dew to land on him. His, his hair would be like feathers of an eagle, his nails like claws. And that would be that way for seven years. And at the end of the seven-year period, God would restore his sanity and restore his kingdom. And because of how Daniel felt for this guy, he added a little bit of advice on verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, it was a year before something actually happened. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar took this to heart. Maybe he did try to mend his ways. But at some point, he was boasting about the great Babylon that he had built. And justifiably so. Babylon came to its zenith under Nebuchadnezzar. He was a great builder. He was a great statesman. But he didn't give glory to God, even though he was now aware he had to. And it did happen. And after seven years... He was restored to his kingdom. And that in of itself was a miracle. You had a monarch in those days go nuts and disappear and go crazy. Usually they just kind of shoved him aside and brought in a new king. That didn't happen here. Something had happened. It was a miracle. God brought it in. And Nebuchadnezzar knew it was true. Daniel had that reputation. If we look at the, at the story of the handwriting on the wall, Okay. Basically, again, that he had a, Daniel had a reputation. I'm not going. That's in chapter five. Belshazzar's having this huge banquet. By indications, this was like a national holiday of some sort, national celebration. Even though at this point in history, the city was completely surrounded by an army that was besieging it. Of course, they figured, hey, we're Babylon. They've got these huge walls, high, wide, impenetrable. No one can break in. So why not have a party? Business as usual. Not a problem. So they're having this party. And as they go on, they decide, we're going to pull out some stuff from the temple of the Lord. And we're going to use that and start praising our own gods with these things. Basically blaspheming. Next thing you know, in the middle of the party, this hand appears and starts writing these four words on the wall and then disappears. Party's over at this point. Nebuchadnezzar, or Belshazzar's looking at it, and I love the way the Bible says it. His knees are knocking. It completely unmanned the guy. He's looking at this as like, what is it? What was it? Calls in the usual suspects. They can't answer it. And his mother, the queen, chapter 5, verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O Lord, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you. Or let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. And Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Okay? Of course, we know the story here. And Daniel came in. At this point, he was in his 80s. He was old. Still had that reputation. What does it mean? Well, Belshazzar, or Daniel clearly did not have the same affection for Belshazzar as he had for Nebuchadnezzar. He was pretty blunt about it. Don't give me any reward. Let me tell you exactly what that means. Basically, 
your kingdom is your days of your kingdom is numbered and they're now over you've been you know you've been found, weighed in the scales have been found wanting and now your kingdom is going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians goodbye and he left and sure enough at that point in time Cyrus king of the Medes and the Persians had diverted the Euphrates River which ran through the middle of Babylon so that the river level under the walls went down to about oh thigh high and marched his army right into the city. And that night, well, that was the end of Belshazzar. And a new phase. But we continue going into chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 3. Now the Persians were in charge. So if we look at verse 3 in chapter 6, this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. High government official that wasn't taking bribes, amazing. No, not really, it's Daniel. He was not going to defile himself. He was concerned about his reputation and his witness of his God. That was basically what was going on here. Verse 5, these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Well, basically we know what happened. Okay, again, time doesn't permit us to read through the whole thing, but in a nutshell, they had this great idea. They went to the king. They said, King, we have a great idea. In order to unify this realm, now we just conquered the Babylonian Empire, okay? To kind of unify it around you, let's make it a law that for one month, no one can petition anyone or any god except you. Basically, you can't pray to anybody except to the king. And what it was appearing is that this was a unanimous decision among all us administrators. Now, Daniel's not here, but the implication was, yeah, he's, he, he's fine with it. He thinks it's a great idea, too. Now, we all, we unanimously say this is right. And the king, being a statesman, figured, you know, that's not a bad idea. You'll unify the kingdom, make sure everyone knows who's in charge now, and one month, hey, no one's going to care. A month will be by before you know it. He didn't really think that anyone was going to try to double-cross anybody else that was a king's favorite. Did this really matter to Daniel? No. He knew it was the decree. He was aware of it. And the interesting thing, and this is what kind of made Persia the silver as opposed to the gold, was once the king made a decree, it could not be reversed or revoked. That was the law of the Medes of the Persians. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, his word was law, and if he changed his mind, that was law too. It didn't really matter. So he knew, okay, once Darius makes this decision, it's either God or Darius. Well, guess what? Daniel continued to pray three times a day the Lord. And, of course, they set it up. They were waiting for him to do it, and when he was doing it, they burst on him, and they told, hey, king, look at this guy, this, this, this Judean captive you've got here. He's praying to his God, and he's not giving you the proper respect. You know the law. We're supposed to throw him into a lion's den, let him get eaten alive by lions, and they're thinking there, well, yeah, we got him where we want him. And it's interesting, because of that reputation, Darius's response was, oh, what did I do? 
He didn't want that to happen. He spent an entire day trying to figure out how can we get around this because he knew he'd been duped. And they're reminding him, hey, king, you can't change your mind. This is a law. You have to put him in there. We go to chapter 6, verse 16. So the king gave the command. And they brought Daniel and cast him into the dead alliance. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, here's that reputation again, your God, whom you serve continually, will deliver you. What a reputation. (laughs) You know, I don't know if you know what hungry lions are like. You see things like Wild Kingdom and some of these nature shows where they're tearing down some, you know, zebra or some animal. I mean, these guys aren't, aren't gentle. And I'm sure he's sitting there thinking, well, this is the last time I'm going to see this guy. But even so, it's like, you know, Daniel, it's going to happen. God's going to take care of you. A pagan king, just by his reputation alone. And what happens? Well, we know the story. Verse 20, after a sleepless night, he came to the den. He cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And up comes the reply. Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him, and also, king, I have done no wrong before you. That's amazing. I wish I had a reputation like that. I I don't have a bad one, but this is something that, I mean, we all need to strive for. And yet, Daniel was was aware that he wasn't perfect. Let's jump ahead to chapter 9. Daniel was fully aware of his sins, no matter what. He was probably one of these people that, if I could look at it, I could see him actually saying, you know, all these, you know, I I came in, I abstained from the food, I kept my nose clean, and all these other guys, we never hear of them again. They just went their own way, and they ignored the Lord. You know, hey, you know, I did what I was supposed to do. And yet he didn't. In chapter 9, we see a prayer of intervention At this point in time, Daniel is watching prophecy unfold. And I I mean, in a sense, we've been talking about it in in church, how we see what's happening with with Israel, with alignments of nations against Israel, bits and pieces of prophecy coming together. And it's just, I imagine when, when Daniel first heard that some guy named Cyrus was surrounding the city of Babylon, he's thinking, whoa, Isaiah was right mentioned Cyrus. And he also knew in in Jeremiah that it was coming close to the end of the 70-year period that God said they were going to be in Babylon. And so he knew, hey, we're getting close. And so he gets on his knees, starting in verse 4 of chapter 9. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenants in mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. 
We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. And as we read through it, Daniel included himself as we sinned. We did it. We deserved it. Everything that happened was because of us. Now, most of us will think of Daniel as a teenager that we'd all be proud to have as our son. Sent away into a foreign land and holding by as the way we brought him up. Not veering one inch. We really don't know much about Daniel's background. We know that he was a noble. He was of noble birth. Obviously, he was well-trained in the law because he kept it. But one thing, just consider. He may have been listening to Jeremiah. He may have heard the words of Jeremiah 25.8. And let me read them to you. Therefore says the Lord God, or the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be made a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations will, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it. All that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. Could be that Daniel was there in the temple listening to this as a young lad. It could be that he knew the law in his heart or his head. But maybe not in his heart. We don't know. Just a thought. Because oftentimes people are in the church, they think they're okay. They're listening to the pastor, they're listening to someone like me, Pastor Ray, whoever, and they think, oh, yeah, this doesn't apply to me. I'm here at church. I'm safe. I know the Bible. But is it really applying down here? Daniel watched his world come apart before his very eyes. He was the first group of captives. When he got to Babylon, he was actually one of the lucky ones. Because he heard later from the later exiles how Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple completely destroyed. And I'm sure that pretty much the trip out told him, I am not going to budge one inch. I know God was right. I'm seeing it directly in front of me. He acknowledged he had sinned at some point. Again, I don't know if that was the case. But it's logical. Perhaps that's what he was referring to because he included himself in that entire prayer in chapter 9, that he was part of the problem. Finally, our last point. Daniel trusted in the promises of God no matter what. He knew from Jeremiah 25, 
We know it as 25. He didn't know it as that. God promised this desolation was coming on Judah, on Jerusalem, and eventually on the Babylonians. But he also knew God had another side to that promise. Jeremiah 29.10 For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. I'm sure at this point, toward the end of that 70 years, there were a lot of people saying, we're stuck here in Babylon. That's it. The Lord's forgotten us. But Daniel's sitting here saying, no. It's right here in the Word. It's right here. We're going back. And we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us if Daniel was one of the ones that went back. Probably not. He was pretty old. He was in fairly poor health. And there's a lot of places in the Middle East that boast of Daniel's tomb. But he was able to reassure others, no, it's going to come back. We're heading back there. And probably people believed him because of his reputation, because of his stand for the Lord, because of the way he conducted his life as a witness to everyone. That steadfast faith that we all could use and all could need. As men, we need to emulate these. I don't care where you are in your Christian walk. Brand new baby Christian or someone's been around for a long time. These five points, standing firmly for what is right, doing things God's way and giving him the glory, keeping an outstanding reputation about every part of your life, including your spiritual life being fully aware of your own sin and weaknesses, but not being burdened by them, and always trusting in the promises of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we are humbled before you right now. We went through a lot tonight, but it's such a beautiful example for us all because all of us fall short in some of these areas. We are your children, Father. And we know that you love us and you want the best for all of us. And you've given us this example of Daniel to get, encourage us, not to beat us down, but to encourage us. Because another thing we've seen through this is God, you, you bless Daniel for his faith for his steadfastness in your word, and for his reputation. We ask you to bless us. Give us the authority and the power to do the same, to always stand for what is right, always stand for you, Father, 
always maintain that reputation and witness to Christian and non-Christian alike. And we thank you, Father, that you have given us that privilege that we can do so and be called your sons. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.